D.B. Cooper. This is the false identity of the man who committed the only unsolved plane hijacking in American history. A man with such skill and precision that the most powerful investigative organization in the world, the FBI, could not solve his crime. An event that has perplexed both investigators and everyday people for almost half a century. Now, without further ado, the unsolved mystery of D.B. Cooper. You're listening to the Back in History Class podcast. On Thanksgiving Eve, November 24th of 1971, a man carrying a black briefcase approached the counter of Northwest Orient Airlines at Portland International Airport. He identified himself as Dan Cooper, using cash to purchase a one-way ticket on Flight 305, a 30-minute trip north to Seattle. Little did he or anyone else know that the history of airline security was about to change forever. Cooper boarded the plane and took a seat in the rear section of the cabin. He promptly lit a cigarette and ordered a bourbon and soda. Passengers described him as a man in his mid-40s, standing around 5'11 or 6 feet tall. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper handed the flight attendant, Florence Schaffner, a note. She left it unopened and dropped it into her purse. At that instant, Cooper leaned in and whispered, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. The note relayed this message. He then told her to sit beside him, and she obliged. She asked him if she could see the bomb, prompting him to open the briefcase long enough for Schaffner to witness eight red cylindrical devices and a large cylinder battery. Cooper followed by stating his demands, $200,000 in negotiable American currency, four parachutes, and a fuel truck on standby to refuel the plane for another flight once they reached the airport. Schaffner traveled to the cockpit to relay the demands to the pilots. When she returned, Cooper was wearing dark sunglasses. The pilot contacted air traffic control at the Seattle-Tacoma airport, who then informed local and federal authorities. The other passengers were fed false information that the landing would be delayed as a result of a minor mechanical difficulty. The aircraft circle put its sound for roughly two hours in order to give Seattle police and the FBI sufficient time to assemble the cash and parachutes. The thing that separated Cooper from the stereotypical criminal is the confidence that he possessed, with Schaffner describing him as well-spoken, polite, and calm. 5.24 p.m. Cooper is informed that his demands have been met and just 15 minutes later, the plane touched down at the airport. Cooper instructed the pilot to land the jet in an isolated, brightly lit section of the tarmac and to close each cabin window shade to deter police snipers. Once the cash and parachutes were delivered to Cooper on the plane, he ordered that all passengers and most flight attendants exit the plane. Cooper outlined his flight plan for the following trip for the remaining crew while the craft refueled. The path would be southeast on a route in the approximate direction of Mexico City. He also demanded that the plane be flown at the minimum airspeed possible without the plane stalling. That would be about 115 miles per hour. He further stated that the plane not go above 10,000 feet in altitude. 
the landing gear remain deployed, and the cabin be unpressurized. The final condition that Cooper demanded, for obvious reasons, was that the rear door remain open and the rear staircase extended before the flight began. 7.40 p.m. The Boeing 727 lifts off with just Cooper, the pilot, co-pilot, Schaffner, and a plane engineer. The United States Air Force was involved in the event at this point, deploying two fighter jets to trail the aircraft. After takeoff, Cooper told the crew to remain in the cockpit with the door closed until instructed otherwise. 8 p.m. The pilot receives a digital warning that the air stairs had been fully extended. The crew offered assistance via the plane's intercom system, but this was quickly denied. They soon noticed a drastic change in air pressure, indicating that the rear door had been opened. 8.13 p.m. The aircraft sustained a sharp upward movement from the rear, which is now commonly believed to be the time when Cooper departed the plane, taking the money and two of the four parachutes provided to him. The plane landed in Reno, Nevada approximately two hours later, and an armed search of the aircraft quickly confirmed his absence. Cooper had leapt from a plane traveling over 100 miles per hour in the black night of the Pacific Northwest. The evidence found on the plane was limited at best. 66 fingerprints were recovered, but none of which could be tied back to a viable suspect. Cooper's black clip on tie, tie clip, and the two remaining parachutes were left behind in his jump. Authorities interviewed those who interacted personally with Cooper at both airports, in addition to those who spoke with him during the flights, and a series of composite sketches were developed. An exact search area was difficult to determine as factors such as the weather, wind, and the point at which he deployed the parachutes would have played a huge role on where Cooper would have landed. It was determined, however, that at 8.13 p.m., the time most believe he departed the plane, they were traveling through a heavy rainstorm in southern Washington. One theory that has been developed is that Cooper did not even survive the jump. Neither of the Air Force fighter pilots saw a parachute deploy, and Cooper's training in the area of skydiving is assumed to be amateur. The physical evidence against Cooper discovered in the aftermath of that mysterious night totals in four main pieces, two of which are confirmed to be related, and the remaining two are just potential pieces. In 1978, a card detailing the instructions for lowering the air stairs on a Boeing 727 was found by a hunter with, within the flight path of the plane that night. In February 1980, an 8-year-old boy named Brian Ingram was on a vacation with his family along the Columbia River at a beachfront known as Time Bar. This is located well within the plane's flight path as well, just 9 miles south of Vancouver, Washington. The child discovered three packets of the ransom money as he raked the Sandy River Bank to build a fire, just miles from the location of the instruction card's discovery. While the $20 bills were drastically disintegrated, they were still in their rubber bands, and the serial numbers on the bills confirmed their authenticity. Much time passed before any new evidence emerged in this case. But in 2017, a group of volunteer investigators unearthed what appeared to be a decades-old parachute strap, believed to be part of one of the chutes Cooper used in his escape. Just months later, in August of the same year, a piece of foam was found in the same area that is believed to be a part of Cooper's backpack. 
The amount of effort and manpower put into this investigation in the years following the night of November 24th were substantial to say the least. The FBI coordinated an aerial search of the treetops along the entire flight path from Seattle to Reno. And while many pieces of plastic resembling parachute canopies were discovered and brought in, nothing relevant to the hijacking was found. After the spring thaw of 1972, roughly four months after the event, FBI agents, Air Force personnel, National Guardsmen, civilian volunteers, and some 200 U.S. Army soldiers conducted a ground search of the two counties considered to be the most likely areas of landing. The search went on for a total of 36 days, uncovering no significant material evidence pertaining to the investigation. The operation, arguably the largest and most extensive of its kind in American history, was a complete failure. On July 8, 2016, the FBI announced that it was suspending active investigation of the Cooper case. The Bureau is, however, still accepting legitimate evidence regarding the event, and the case could be reopened if sufficient evidence is brought that would warrant such an action. All information gathered to this point over the 45-year span of the case is available for public viewing on the FBI website, and the records are safely stored in the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. After much frustration and bewilderment, it seems that the case of D.B. Cooper will never truly be solved. Decades have passed, and a case file that now encompasses over 60 volumes is no closer to revealing this man's true identity than on the night of the event. Many have their theories, but nothing can be proven. What do you think? We love to hear your feedback, so message us on Twitter at class. That's going to wrap this one up, so remember to check back regularly for new podcasts from our Teen Psyche channel. Also check out our YouTube channel titled The Back in History Class Show. Thanks for listening.